for the week of July 25th, 2013. This is the Energy Gang podcast from Green Tech Media. In Washington, D.C., I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor at Green Tech Media, and my two co-hosts are with me as usual. In New York City, uh, Jigger Shah, an energy futurist and author of the upcoming book, Creating Climate Wealth, and Fresh from the Dentist. Jigger, how are you today? Hello, hello. Uh, I have a clean bill of health. Excellent, excellent. And it's too bad that this, this isn't video or else we get to see your shining smile. <laughs> And in Washington, D.C., Energy Politico and founder of 38 North Solutions, Catherine Hamilton, fresh off of meetings for the day. Catherine, how are you? Great. The weather's calmed down a little bit here, even if Congress hasn't. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get into uh, congressional happenings in the third part of our show, and we're going to tackle some heavy-duty topics this week. First up, we're going to discuss the new film Gasland 2. Documentary filmmaker and natural gas crusader Josh Fox is out with a sequel to his popular film on fracking, uh, Gasland, the original from HBO. We'll review the film and do our best to break down the reality of what the frack is going on with natural gas drilling around this country. Then the popular oil drum website is closing its doors, and we'll ask, what does it mean for the messengers of peak oil? And then finally, we'll turn from a finite resource to an invisible resource, energy efficiency. The Shaheen-Portman Energy Efficiency Bill is making the rounds in Washington, and we'll look at whether Congress can pass this important piece of legislation. All right, on to our first topic, Gasland 2. Hi. My name is Josh Fox. This is my house. It's in the middle of the woods, tucked away on a dirt road in a small town next to the Delaware River called Milanville, Pennsylvania. Just past my backyard, there's a stream that feeds the Delaware. It's been five years since the first proposal to drill thousands of gas wells in the Delaware River Basin came knocking at my door. HBO has just released Josh Fox's combustible film documenting the environmental and health problems associated with fracking around the U.S. And uh, as expected, Environmental activists are holding it up as, as gospel, and the natural gas industry is frantically, is frantically trying to discredit Fox's claims. And meanwhile, all of us are left wondering who to believe. So before we get into this and hear from the gang on what they think about the film, I thought it would be helpful to reach out to someone who's been covering the gas industry very closely for many years. Uh, yesterday, I chatted with Abram Lustgarden, an environmental journalist with ProPublica, and he's been covering the fracking boom since 2008. I asked him to cut through the claims and counterclaims about the impact of fracking and tell me what he's actually seen happen on the ground over the last five years. You know, there's been enough cause for concern to fill more than 100 stories, uh, you know, that I've written on the subject. Uh, you know, I see these impacts uh, everywhere I go. Uh, I hear allegations of water impacts uh, virtually everywhere I go, and they, and they correlate anecdotally to uh, very grave concerns about um, you know health threats and health uh, uh, problems in these same areas where there's exposure to the emissions from drilling or the water near drilling and things like that. Um, in the years since I began reporting on this in 2008, uh, a lot of the scientific research that we're discussing has begun to be done, and uh, with a few exceptions, uh, a lot of that research has, has 
supported the same kind of things that I've found anecdotally through through my reporting. Um, there have certainly been a few studies that have not found impact, but the Duke University research, uh, the groundwater articles, and so forth, also lend credence to, to this idea that there is, uh, you know, widespread environmental impact from, from the drilling. Um, you know, my sense is there are a great number of techniques that can be applied, physical techniques when a gas well is drilled that can mitigate some of these risks that can uh, maybe not eliminate them but could, you know, in a best-case scenario, um, make this process a bit safer. Uh, you know, but from what I do see in the way, you know, the industry does practice, I think that there's very legitimate cause for, for concern. So we have a number of individual studies to back Lust Garden's assessment up, but we still don't have this national review of the impacts, and we're all waiting on that. We're probably not going to get a final review from the EPA until 2016. So while we wait on the science to get settled, people are lobbing grenades on both sides, hoping to win the messaging war on this issue, which makes a film like Gasland so influential on the debate. So what do we all think about it? Um, I want to turn to my co-hosts and get their reaction to the film. Uh, Catherine, you saw the film recently. Uh, what was your perception after you watched it? Yeah, it's pre- it gets you at a pretty emotional level. Um, if you can get past, honestly, I think that Josh Fox is brilliant, but he can be in kind of an annoying narrator a little bit too self-aware or something. Uh, but that said, the stories are unbelievable. Um, and it really does get you and it makes you think, you know, is anybody really tracking this stuff other than a filmmaker? Is anybody really counting what's going on? Is anybody really out there seriously taking down every single thing that's happening? Uh, it, it was really powerful. So, I mean, I've met Josh and I saw Gasland one and you know, I was a little disappointed in the fact that most of the stories I thought were rehashed from Gasland 1, so there wasn't an awful lot of new content. And I do think that a lot of the stories that he's actually covered there from Dimmick um, and other places have actually already been dismissed by both EPA and the gas industry. So, I mean, I think there's lots of reasons to hate gas, and I have every – I do believe the pro, you know public uh, uh, journalist around the fact that – there are problems, particularly from the um, from the wildcatters, but I just don't. I don't know. I just have a hard time believing that it's as widespread as you know Josh sort of makes it out to believe. Yeah, that's why I think having kind of these anecdotal stories is 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 in the end not going to be as useful as really cataloging what's going on out there. Well, this is the problem, right? I mean, at this point, we're mostly relying on relying on anecdotal stories, and that's the problem that I have with the film as well. Uh, it's it's really a very deep, dark story, and. You know, Fox clearly knows how to spin a story, right? His narration is dark and moody. It sets the tone really well. And I actually thought it was a good extension of the first film. But I I look at this through a more journalistic lens. And so I automatically assume, even if I might be more sympathetic to the story than some skeptics out there, that Fox is cherry-picking these stories uh, in certain ways to to weave a good story. That's what filmmaking is all about. And you don't tell a super scary story like this without systematically picking the points that back up the story you want to tell. But so that's that's the way I looked at the film. And then I had this long conversation with Abram. I've been following his reporting on natural gas for many years since I got interested in the issue. And what he said was, 
clearly the science uh, is still not settled, particularly a national fracking assessment that we're waiting from from, from the EPA, and uh, that won't come out for many years to come. But he travels all around the country and has gone to every single region that is being touched by natural gas fracking, and he backs up the stories that are being told and that there really is a systematic set of problems. Um, how widespread the health problems are, it's still unknown. Um, but, you know, I, I trust the, the journalist's eye to back up many of the points that were made in the film. That's great. So, so, so Brahm actually thinks that, you know, that he actually knows what the frack is going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like a, like a good journalist should be, he holds out um, a lot for the actual science to come in, right? He's very clear that what he's reporting on is somewhat anecdotal, that he's reporting on some of the individual studies out there that look at groundwater contamination and deep contamination, how fracking fluids and methane uh, is bubbling up. And some of these studies contradict one another. And, and so uh, while he does back up many of the anecdotal stories and says, look, this is something we really need to pay attention to. I see it with my very own eyes. There really is a layer of science here that we do not have, and we're waiting from the EPA. And we're not going to get that for some time, and that's really concerning to me. So I view this slightly from a different lens, right? Basically, I look at this from the economic lens. And the thing that's interesting to me is the American Gas Association basically put out a report back in October of 2012 that basically states that dry gas wells in Pennsylvania um, that use fracking are not profitable unless gas – prices are at 550 million BTU. And so that the only reason why people are still fracking right now is because um, they're going after wet gas locations in Ohio, where they're actually selling off the LPG and the other condensates that come out of the well. And the gas is actually free, sort of coming out of it because they make so much money on the other wet pieces that are – whose prices are really uh, compared to oil prices. And so, so, so what I'm trying to figure out is – you know, we've got a president who is actually betting the bridge to the future on a gas price that no one thinks is actually sustainable, including the American Gas Association going forward. You've got folks who are saying, let's build more natural gas right now, when at 550 a million BTU, both utility scale solar and utility scale wind is cheaper than new natural gas. Well, this brings in the economic piece to the picture that I think is missing in this film. Uh, of course, Josh Fox is taking this from an activist lens, so he's very clearly focused on the individual local impacts. But we do have this economic element. Another issue that we talked about last week was this water element and how much uh, the gas industry is starting to conflict with local agricultural operations and communities for uh, water resources. And then you branch out of this even further and get into the climate picture. And the International Energy Agency says that with a business-as-usual gas scenario, the so-called golden age of gas, um, we could be potentially raising global temperatures uh, to three three and a half degrees Celsius. And to put that into perspective, uh, international negotiators are focused on this two degree Celsius temperature rise by mid-century. And that's a level that sometime, some scientists say could be a recipe for disaster. So the point that you bring up, I didn't mean to pivot too far away from that economic conversation, but these to me are all the threads that come together when we look at gas from a holistic perspective that really make you question the long-term uh, or even the the midterm boom in gas development. 
And Jigger, I have a question for you. Um, are you seeing this globally? Are you seeing this kind of uh, fracking insanity all over the world? Or do you see much more of an impetus here in the U.S.? Well, this is what's scary, right? So right now, all of the historical information is U.S., right? That's where things are happening because the U.S. actually has the drilling rigs to work on it. Um, the other areas around the world actually are ordering new drilling rigs, and it'll take another year or two. But I know a guy I met in London uh, a week and a half ago who's actually you know, gung-ho about doing fracking in India. Uh, and there's other folks in other places around the world that are trying as well. And that's scary because in India, I mean, you've already got people who are dying from a lack of freshwater resources. And so this notion that we're going to start um, using freshwater resources to get gas out of the ground is very scary. I think what a lot of this in this country is going to fall into is politics. And, um, you know, so EPA is pretty limited in what they can do right now. We have to build a record. We have to make sure they're given new authorities to regulate um, under the Safe Drinking Water Act, which they don't have right now for fracking. Um, and in order to do that, we're going to have to have enormous amount of political pressure put on our Congress. The interesting thing is that what's happening out in these states, and I was just in Colorado, and I talked to some folks out there, um, because they're seeing this happen there. And, and Stephen, you can you can tell me if I'm right or wrong uh, based on you know talking, doing your research. But but where these wells are popping up are quite often in remote areas where the, the folks who are living there are the Tea Party, sort of the right wing Republicans, and they are now aligning themselves with the environmentalists because it's affecting them. It's not affecting the urban people who tend to be the Democrats. It's affecting a lot of the Republicans. And once we can put that grassroots pressure on Congress, um, as long as Congress is controlled by Republicans, that's what's going to have to happen for any new regulation to occur. And they're certainly not in the mood right now for new regulation at all. In fact, they're trying to roll back everything EPA is doing now. They cut their funding by a third in the House bill. Um, but I think that's what, what's really going to move things is the grassroots p pressure on these folks. Well, Catherine, I'd love to your advice on this. I mean, I so this is where the Democratic Party politics breaks down for me. I mean, I think when you think about the Hillary Clinton approach to fracking, where she's very pro shale gas and was so as Secretary of State, part of this for her was look, this is the U.S. exerting dominance in the world again. You know, in 2005, when Lee Raymond announced that we had hit peak gas in the North American continent, you know, we had sort of relegated ourselves to having to import gas through LNG from Trinidad and Tobago, Qatar, and then Gazprom was, you know, was was wielding its might in Europe. Um, today, Gazprom's really afraid, and I think the U.S. and a lot of the hawks in the Democratic Party love the fact that gas has given the U.S. all these new powers on the foreign stage. Yeah, I think, uh, unfortunately, with, with presidential elections, you're going for numbers in voting. And those tend to be, uh, for the Democrats, certainly in the urban centers. Um, so I think that there's going to need to be some pressure put on from, you know, from those communities that are being affected to try to get those messages into her. Because if she's running for president, um, you know, she's going to, th those might get lost if those aren't votes that she's really going after. 
but but this is why the political conversation hasn't changed. It's because we don't have a definitive scientific conclusion on what fracking does. And so therefore you have anecdotal stories, you have journalists writing reports, you have uh, inconclusive local studies, you have people like Josh Fox raising the alarm and sounding like uh, activists and turning some people in the political environment off. And we don't yet have a national fracking study from the EPA that we desperately need and won't come until 2016. And so for the next few years, the conversation is going to stay the same. Uh, and it, it, this is a great political messaging tool. So at this point, when it comes to po political leaders, they can casually dismiss many of these impacts uh, and say that, oh, we'll deal with them on an individual basis because we just don't have the science to say, okay, this is actually a widespread problem and we need to change the conversation around it. Plus, I you think you're – I mean, Stephen, I really think you're being a little bit too logical about this process. I think this is <laughs> our – more difficult thing. Think about what just happened, right? In, in Egypt, Qatar basically, with a number of other countries, gave $20 billion to Morsi's government, which basically dwarfed the amount of money that um, the U.S. had previously given him in, in, uh, um, for military aid and totally dwarfed that. I mean, the U.S. – I mean, now Morsi's out of power. I get it. But the U.S. is actually using gas against Qatar, saying, look, if you don't actually – slow your roll here on on the Arab Spring stuff, we're going to actually use this as a weapon against you. And I, I just think the U.S. is looking at this from a far more sort of, you know, like geopolitical perspective. And I, I mean, I think the environmental stuff, as usual, is getting lost to, you know, the uh, sort of the, the fringes. But I don't think domestic drilling will be significantly slowed by any major uh, environmental regulations. So in its IEA, in the IEA's Golden Age of Gas report, it issued recommendations on how to trap gas or how to trap methane, how to uh, make well casings so they were thicker, how to do these very basic things to ensure you don't have local water contamination and you don't have more methane leakages. And it found that you, with best practices, it would only add costs of about seven percent. And so that wouldn't significantly slow the uh, fracking industry here in the United States. Uh, Colorado, the Colorado drilling industry actually came out and said, well, we're proud to know that we've implemented 10 of the IEA's recommendations. And, you know, it, the Colorado fracking industry is going gangbusters. So there's some very basic things that we can do on a local level that we're not mandating federally that could happen without slowing the rise of gas. On the geopolitical level, what's going to change that is not the environmental regulations, but thinking about this in a broader climate context, and that changes the way you negotiate with countries, that changes how you talk about your energy strategy in a fundamentally different way. And that, to me, that climate context is really what guides the geopolitical context. I don't know. I I really think when you think about India, for instance, um, which you know I think I know a little bit better than China right now on this issue. Um, you know, India really does have an extraordinary opportunity to move to renewable energy, and it actually could move at scale. And I think the U.S. is absolutely you know poisoning their mind around shale gas, even though they don't have the water. The U.S. absolutely wants to export its shale gas technology to India to get them addicted to shale gas when um, when they shouldn't be because they don't really have the water to do this, etc. I don't think the U.S. is actually pushing solar and wind technology that's homegrown in the United States over its shale technology. Hillary Clinton made that very clear when she did her tour in Latin America and South America.
Yeah. I hate to sound very absolutist as if one particular factor is somehow going to change the debate. I mean, as we've seen with climate science, generally, the debate hasn't been changed much, or at least the debate has, but the the political uh, mechanics have not changed. With that said, uh, people are really doing their best to talk about natural gas in this climate context. I mentioned the IEA report. My former colleagues at the Center for American Progress just issued a new report yesterday looking at what the U.S. needs to do with natural gas generation in order to meet its climate targets and try to stabilize temperatures at two degrees Celsius. And it found that we need to peak, or natural gas use needs to peak by between 2020 and 2030. And so we often talk about natural gas as this fuel that's going to propel the United States over the next century. And when you talk about this in a climate context, we're looking at a decade of natural gas use. So that that changes the dynamics significantly. Do I expect that this is necessarily going to change the politics? No. But this is a drumbeat I think is very important. I'm fairly confident that natural gas will fail miserably in our electricity grid. Every utility CEO I know, every regulator that I'm talking to that's intelligent about these issues knows that natural gas is becoming less and less profitable every single year because natural gas prices are going up, solar and wind prices are coming down, and wholesale prices have fallen tremendously since 2008. So I don't think natural gas will be an economic winner in the future. And that's why I think the politics of natural gas is leading to LNG and exports. And I think that what we're going to try to do is to export natural natural gas around the world to try to defeat coal as opposed to pushing our clean energy solutions around the world to defeat coal. And I I think that we as the clean energy movement are going to have to start wrestling with this issue this year. Otherwise, we're going to lose a battle at the Overseas Private Investment Corp, at the Export-Import Bank, and other places that the U.S. actually changes policy to push um, the shale gas technology and then, you know, GE's natural gas technology around the world. All right. Well, let's go on from the politics of natural gas and go to the politics of oil, another very complicated topic. So as we know, the fracking boom has reignited uh, America's oil industry, and we're actually producing uh, more liquid fuels than at any time since the mid-90s. And so this has led fossil fuel proponents to declare that peak oil is dead. And uh This is big news within Energy Circles, one of the leading websites that covers peak oil research. The Oil Drum, which has been around for eight years or so, announced that it was uh, closing up shop. So what does this mean for the debate around peak oil? Um, I was a sporadic reader of the site. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, Either of you want to jump in on what this means for the messaging of peak oil itself? I think we just lost the debate. Look, I mean, I mean, I think we're still right in the sense that, you know, I never believed in peak oil as in peak oil, but I do believe in peak conventional oil. And I think the data shows that we peaked in terms of conventional oil in 2005. All the growth in liquids has really been from unconventional oil, which like fracking, deep sea oil drilling, um, Arctic oil, tar sands, and that kind of stuff is super expensive. It's far more expensive than the 15 and $20 oil that we were pumping out of the ground 10 years ago. And so, I mean, I think we were right in terms of peak conventional oil, but I think we've lost the messaging war. 
Yeah, and I would just say, um, Stephen, you had talked um, about the very sad passing of uh, Randy Udall last week. And, of course, he was a huge voice in that conversation with the Association for the Study of Peak Oil and Gas. And I I think um, you know, the data show very differently from the messaging. And I think somehow we're going to have to change that or else you can have all the data in the world and it doesn't do any good. Yeah, that's a great point. And we were passing around this story from Chris Nelder, who is – uh, a peak oil thought leader, and he sometimes writes for uh, Green Tech Media. He was a former contributor to the oil drum, and and he broke out the difference between those two topics really nicely. So the narrative in the press since the oil drum closed down is that peak oil is gone, and that you know that's happened because of this boom in fracking in the U.S. It's this very U.S. centric approach, um, and the death of the oil drum website plays into that really nicely. And and actually, I think it says a lot about how we spin narratives in the press. It gets headlines. It's a really simple topic. Um, but unfortunately, it doesn't get us any closer to the real issue. And the press coverage for the oil drum's demise is a proxy for the lack of real discussion of this issue in the in the press, particularly in the U.S., where we've been temporarily blinded by this promise of fracking. And then on the other side, of course, there's the actual data and many people have laid out some very convincing arguments, in my opinion. I am not a peak oil expert in the slightest. It's an area of research that fascinates me enough to have this armchair interest, but I you know, have no real expertise in the deep data behind it. But there are some really alarming signs that people point to. And Nelder had this great piece responding to critics of or responding to people that said the oil drum closing down was uh, evidence that the peak oil argument has completely failed. And he says, no, look, maybe the messaging war has changed, but the data still shows that uh, peak production is a problem. And he shows that, you know, we've seen a 5% aggregate decline in global oil fields each year. And we're adding maybe a couple million barrels a day to the equation in the U.S., and it's not about fracking saving the world from peak oil. It's about how long fracking can make up for the current declines. And but then, we've of course- still lost. I mean, but the thing is, Stephen, we still lost the messaging battle. I mean, this is what I was saying. But last did people week. really care in the first place? They, I mean, the they, question they is, they should care. I mean, oil gasoline is at four dollars a gallon. People in the messaging world have convinced all of us. That it's okay, that that's the new normal, that there's nothing the president of the United States can do or anybody else can do to get us back to $2 gallon gasoline. We literally have just given up this entire line of reasoning. It's no longer you know, one of these outside pressure points like it used to be around what we do for the future of transportation fuels. So I agree with you that there, there is a material impact to potential policy. I just can't – I don't see it as um, – a huge impact, though. I just think that on our side of the ledger, right, on the environmentalists and clean tech leaders and all these other thoughtful people to, you know, to sort of I think we're wishy-washy as a group. It's not clear to me that our group actually believes um, in in two things. One, that conventional oil has peaked and that unconventional oil, by definition, needs $100 a barrel of oil to actually be profitable. Like tar sands costs 60 to $70 a barrel. So I don't think that's widely known within our industry, and that's a shame. And that's where peak oil, I think, and, and websites like the Oil Drum were playing an invaluable service. And two – you know, I believe very strongly that by 2050 we will decarbonize the electricity grid. I am willing to bet a lot of things that that's going to happen. 
I do not believe that as a sector that we have that level of confidence around oil. And then this fracking boom, even though it's misplaced and Chris's, you know, piece was beautifully written in this area, you know, I, I think there's a lot of folks now who believe that, you know, that, that we have oil as far as the eye can see and that that in general we don't need to be working with gust at, at you know with with speed on the alternatives to oil because this peak oil risk has gone away. So this brings us to a point: what will win the messaging war? And I wrote uh, have written over the last couple of years that the climate context is what will help us win the messaging war. So the perception over the last couple of years is that we have limitless, abundant fossil fuels and. Because of that, we see extraordinary growth in jobs. We see extraordinary economic growth in areas where the fracking boom is taking place. And that has killed traditional arguments around peak oil. It's killed traditional arguments around green jobs. And one of the only ways to come in with an argument that can win the day is to talk about the climate impacts of continuing to burn fossil fuels. Of course, there have been a number of reports that have come out, uh, the IEA as well, saying we need to keep two-thirds of proven fossil fuel reserves in the ground to stabilize global temperatures and to prevent runaway climate change. So maybe the peak oil debate has been lost for the short term, but the climate change debate is, in my opinion, an equally, if not better, messaging strategy to use. Oh, all right. So we've been bogged down in a couple of negative topics. So let's move on to something a little bit more positive a bipartisan energy efficiency bill that may be hitting the Senate floor next week, uh, the Shaheen-Portman bill, which would establish national efficiency standards for buildings, uh, industry, and federal agencies, is back on the table. Uh, the bill was introduced last year in, with strong bipartisan support, but it ultimately failed because of a uh, controversial amendment on Keystone XL. Catherine, I know you have been tracking this very closely why don't you give us uh, an idea of what's in the bill first, and then we can get into some of the politics after. Sure, sure, absolutely. And speaking of kind of trying to get at the climate piece of it, um, they're putting statements out that by 2020, this bill is going to create 80,000 new jobs, lower CO2 emissions by the equivalent of taking 5 million cars off the road and save consumers $4 billion a year in reduced energy costs. So they're messaging around climate as much as they are messaging around jobs and you know economic reasons. So um, first of all, I wanted to go back just for a second and say, you know, Senator Shaheen and Senator Portman both believe in energy efficiency. They both are are actual believers in it. Portman is more of an all of the above guy than Shaheen. Shaheen's, you know, did this in the st when she was in the state house when she was governor. Her house was built in very energy efficient way, according to her office. So she's been she's been a big booster of energy efficiency for quite some time. Um, the couple of things that are here in play is that there hasn't been an energy bill to hit the floor since 2007. So there hasn't been anything out there. This is an opportunity on both sides, not only of the aisle, but in both houses. I've talked to people who say, if there's anything we can do, it should be energy efficiency. You know, never mind the noise around not doing, you know, ceiling, inefficient ceiling fans. Overall, people think energy efficiency is a good idea. So to get into what this bill is, and and this bill was passed, by the way, 19 to 3 positive out of committee. So it, it does have huge support um, in the Senate Energy Committee. So um, what's in it? As Steve Stevens said, 
building energy codes, um, strengthening those codes, worker training and capacity building is in it, trying to coordinate all these training and assessment centers. You know, this is like a jobs piece of it, um, making sure that there's finance um, for existing buildings. Um, there's something called Supply Star that's really interesting that creates a, a model program that's in coordination with the Energy Star program, which has been very, very successful and really good to message around and to communicate around. Um, and this is to look at the entire supply chain around energy efficiency. So that's a really interesting uh proposal in it rebate programs for electric motors and transformers those are those are also in there uh federal agency energy efficiency this is always a big one because uh even the president can make a huge impact on that since the federal government consumes so much energy to say okay all the feds need to do this and become x number you know have x percentage energy efficiency um you know use better computer technologies now is sort of the new the new piece of that um so the federal agencies side is something that is easier for Congress and the president to regulate because it doesn't involve state policies. It's not as disaggregated. They can say, okay, feds, this is what you need to do. Um, so they, they always put a piece in there for the federal government, for energy service contracts, that kind of thing. Data centers are also, uh, you know, a big kahuna. And so federal data centers would be, would be also subject to um, energy and cost savings. So there's some, a lot of new things in here. It is not a, a monumental bill, but it is a good, a, a good bill. Um, I think it's something that is going to move us forward, and it's something that, if it's passed, will have a lot of a lot of support, and will actually be something that we can we can say we got done on energy. Hey, now, sounds, that's it. So, yeah. I was going to say sounds good, but this is Congress, so there's got to yeah. be a turd in the punch bowl somewhere. What's any amendments that we should be looking out for? Oh yeah, of course. Uh, you know, as they call bills like this in Congress, they become Christmas trees, and people put all kinds of ornaments on them, some of which could could bring the whole tree down. Um, and of course, there's there's expected to be a Keystone amendment potentially offered. Uh, there's also a big amendment battle um, around. You know, the federal government is required to lower its fossil use, and there are folks who want to roll that back. So there's a big debate going on about how, you know, what what's the story on this? How can they do this reasonably? So there are a couple of different amendments on that, one of which would strip it, one of which would add it back in. Um, and, you know, these are all really kind of wonky things that, you know, the senators are trying to deal with right now and trying to negotiate. I feel pretty confident that if Harry Reid wants to take it to the floor next week and he gets it to the floor, they will have negotiated a lot in advance. Um, and, and, you know, I hear that he wants to have a vote on Keystone. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah. We'll see how that turns out. Um, well, last but, year, I mean, this bill didn't get to the floor because Harry Reid wouldn't let it because of this Keystone XL approval amendment, right? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe he thinks the numbers have changed. Uh, maybe he thinks there's there's something they can do to keep it safe. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. But I feel pretty sure that he's not going to let it out. He's not going to let it go unless he's he thinks it'll it'll pass. All right, so you're talking to a lot of people on the Hill. Are you feeling uh, positive or unsure about it? What do you think? I feel positive. Yeah? Uh, I do. I feel positive. There's a there's a House bill, too. I feel positive that if the Senate does this and shows some leadership and energy efficiency, that the House can take it up, can feel a little bit safe to take it up, and they will have had some cover from a lot of conservatives that will that could vote for this. 
Um, I am not one of those people who, you know, takes bets. So, so in the end, you never know what'll fall apart. But I'm feeling pretty positive about it. There are so many. There are 250 groups supporting this, who are coming. You know, labor, business, the, the environmental community, the manufacturing community. There, there's a huge, broad coalition, and there's some momentum behind it. Um, and there are just a lot of people talking about it and talking about wanting to add more to make it better. You know, I don't know if that will, if, if those things will happen the positive amendments will happen but i think something will could get through all right well we'll see what happens next week uh when that bill comes to the floor if it comes to the floor and we'll be uh monitoring that closely at green tech media and we'll get an update from you on that Catherine, next time we talk so let's uh wrap up the show here and tell our audience something they don't know uh jigger educate me surprise me so behind the scenes, um, there's been this really interesting battle at the Overseas Private Investment Corporation where Sierra Club and Greenpeace and others successfully sued OPIC to put in place a greenhouse gas emission cap, which basically prevents OPIC from supporting natural gas power plants overseas and lots of other stuff. So General Electric has been working closely with Bono's One campaign to actually systematically destroy this greenhouse gas emission cap so they can you know, sell more um, uh, natural gas turbines. And so GE is pushing it for turbines. One is pushing it because they're saying that diesel fuel is uh, is better than no fuel for the poor in Africa and that this greenhouse gas cap is actually preventing energy access for the poor. So um, unlikely bedfellows that are trying to undo um, some extraordinary progress that we already have in place at OPIC. Does that have a chance of getting repealed? Uh, maybe. You know, GE is yeah. pretty powerful, and the power, the Powering Africa announcement that um, that President Obama made. You know, the the folks who are anti this greenhouse gas cap are saying that that's never going to happen with just wind and solar, and so you have to actually push natural gas there. And so, we'll see. I think it's going to be a bigger battle over time. How about you, Catherine? Tell me something I don't know. Ah, so remember last week we were sweltering, and I remember you know talking about how we could hardly walk outside. It was a hundred and ten heat factor or something ridiculous. Well, the northeast of this country, which was hit with this heat, um, did fine on the electric grid. And why is that? It's because of the demand response. So consumers actually cut back when called upon. Every single day last week, this happened. And in New York, in the New York City area, there was 1,200 megawatts of demand response called. It was absolutely key to enabling the grid to run smoothly and efficiently last week. New Jersey, New England, New York, ISO, all of these states and grid organizations said that is what they had everything running last week. And demand response saved the system. It's actually a really big deal, I have to say, because, I mean, two years ago, I think, or maybe it was three years ago, my mother, I remember, visited me in D.C. July 4th weekend, and we lost power because of this. And we were just, you know, sweltering heat the whole nine yards. And I just think that, you know, what a difference you can make in just three years. Yeah, and this is a term that's actually making its way into the mainstream media. The The Diane Reem show had a show yesterday on the impact of demand response in the Northeast. And they talked about the definition of demand response, how companies were integrating it and growing business strategies around it. And it was the first real consumer-based conversation that I've seen that sort of took demand response out of this wonky context and applied it to 
the elect to how it impacted people's lives. So some interesting changes there. Actually, an impact in the electric grid, and I see an impact in the media as well. It's extraordinary. So since we talked a lot about fossil fuels in this week's show, uh, my story relates to coal investment. As we know, Obama announced recently that he was going to end U.S. financing of international coal plants under most circumstances with a little bit of an out. And now the World Bank and the European Investment Bank have followed suit in the last week or so, saying that they were going to stop backing coal projects. And uh, like, the U- th- like the U.S., both organizations are said they would consider uh, super efficient coal plants or consider coal if it's absolutely uh, the, the only option. Um, but I don't think these announcements can be understated. So uh, as we know, a lot of the projected greenhouse gas emissions are going to come from coal plants in developing countries. And having some of the bigger biggest backers of coal stop these activities uh, sets a model for a lot of other institutions. So I'd say this is a pretty big deal. Hmm. I like it. I have to say that this coal cap is a long time coming and it's just a it's a it, I thought it was a very proud day, actually, when the World Bank um, announced that it's a big deal. Yeah, certainly a, a real groundswell here. And I have a feeling that it will impact other financial institutions as well. So probably the first of many announcements that we may see. And with that, we're going to wrap up this week's show. Um, you can find links to some of the stories that we talked about at greentechmedia.com. Also, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Our RSS feed is linked on the podcast page at greentechmedia.com. And you can also find and listen to us on SoundCloud. And finally, if you have any story ideas, please send them over to me, Lacey at greentechmedia.com. That's L-A-C-E-Y at greentechmedia.com. We always want to hear from our listeners. Um, Just a reminder, we're going to be offline until mid-August. I'm going to be in Alaska enjoying a summer trip, and then we'll loop back around after that. Uh, Catherine Hamilton, good to talk to you this week as always. Yeah, thanks very much. And just as Stephen said, keep those comments coming. We really appreciate the feedback. Yeah, absolutely. Jigger, good to hear from you as well. It's always incredible. (laughs) With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com.